0: I turned to see who was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven gold stands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the Son of Man. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white as white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine brass that has been purified in a furnace and his voice sounded like rushing water. He held seven stars in his right hand and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun shining with all its power. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he put his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever and always. I have the keys of death and the grave, so write down what you have seen, both the scene now before you and the things that are about to unfold after this." And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, here is what they mean. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Betty Jean. So last week I mentioned Clarence Jordan's scripture paraphrase from Colossians that Summing up Jesus' sovereignty and centrality in, in the Cotton Patch Bible. He says, uh, Jesus is tops any way you look at it. Uh, th- that would be a good summary or tattoo, right? Uh, this week, and really every subsequent week after this, for the rest of the summer, is just going to be a variation on that theme. Jesus is tops any way that you look at it, right? Christ is the center and at the center. The vision presented to and by John the Seer then explodes out this simple idea into a 1,000 images. And and this kind of creates a symphony experience, like a Dolby digital surround sound for our scriptural imaginations. In fact, all these visuals take up so much space, they start to bleed into our other senses. It's kind of psychedelic. Um, John writes as if he's come down with synesthesia. Does anyone know what synesthesia is? it's this really rare condition where you like see sound and taste color and hear touch and all these things and so, some of your pathways are a little mixed and so after hearing a voice like a trumpet a voice like a trumpet John quote turns to see a voice John sees a voice how about that this is how revelation from God works specifically for John but also generally for us God's word is tangible. The word wants to take up residence in and with us, to fill us, to take up space, to be embodied through us and in us in this world, to not just be in a book on a shelf, but to play in 10,000 places. The Gospel of John tells that the word that became flesh is primarily Jesus. But it also has to become flesh in us. We become receivers of Jesus and Jesus's ways. Gift bearers of God's presence. Apprentices who know the word so well that his words become our words. Children whose spirits testify with his spirit. That's Romans 8, yeah. So John turns to see a voice. And this is what he sees slash hears, seven lamps. (laughs) Keep in mind how images work in Revelation. As we read together, these are going to kind of be like annotated notes on how how to help you all read this stuff, Um, how I've been helped to read this stuff. Because these images, how they work in Revelation, they don't really add up perfectly. They're not kind of one-to-one correlations or codes. They're symbols. They're figures, Next week, Jeremiah Dotson will trace through these lampstand figures. And I kind of pictured them kind of as like when you're clicking on something on a computer, like a drop-down menu, like you have this image and then you click on it and it drops down with all this other stuff that is happening. And that's kind of what's happening with these lampstands. John calls it the scene now before you and the things that are about to unfold after this. It's, it's unfolding and dumping down with all these uh, new things. Symbols are strong too. Uh, we'll we'll see that throughout this summer. Uh, consider how symbols and figures work for us, like subconsciously on a pre-cognitive level in deep ways that grab onto our hearts and our guts. So think about this on this Memorial Day weekend. Something is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Hopefully, as a one-dollar bill. We've all seen a $1 bill, I hope, right? Um, We'll look at the back of the $1 bill. All these symbols. You might have never even noticed it. A providential eye above a pyramid with 1776 in Roman numerals, and we're always all supposed to kind of know what this means, right? And then there's the eagle inundated with 13s for 13 original colonies, there's 13 stars breaking in from above. This is almost kind of like a baptism in Luke's gospel sort of image or something, right? Um, <coughs> there's 13 olive fruits in one talon, and in the other talon, there's 13 arrows. We see scales of justice, and there's Latin text that abounds with beautiful language, like God has favored us a new order of the ages, and out of many one, e pluribus unum, right? It seems something as basic as our lowest money denomination needs to carry these deep symbols that remind us of our history and our like basic desires, our past, present, and future. So you can see also what sort of interruption and subversion of these symbols does in both good and threatening ways when say you like introduce the idea of a new symbol or you subsume and subvert an old symbol, something that disturbs and disrupts this history and this narrative. Let's say like doing something like creating a 3D printable stamp of a former slave and underground railroader like Harriet Tubman to put over your symbol, right? Don't tell me that Revelation is too weird to investigate and begin to understand its layers because these weird, deep symbols are in our pockets almost every day and and we don't examine them. So the seven lamps that John sees, seven is there because it's the perfect number. And these lamps are a source of light. This is pretty easy for us to see. This doesn't take too much uh, commentary work. But we also might dig a little deeper, and, and, and when you're reading, think of the things that it reminds you of, especially read backwards into what's happened in Scripture, and remember the creation story of seven days, starting with the phrase, let there be light, and ending in divine rest. Or we might consider like the Hanukkah story. This is a little extra biblical or, or uh, apocryphal for us, but where Jews celebrate a victory over a foreign tyrant and rededicate their temple in, Jer- in Jerusalem and they were granted a small amount of oil that proved to be enough. God would be enough and God would provide. God would make a way. God would give light. God would bring freedom and liberation to God's worshiping and expectant people. You see all the things that are happening? Just in that simple phrase, seven lampstands. And then exactly in the middle of these lampstands, which John later reveals to be the seven churches in that drop-down menu, is one, quote, like a son of man. Uh, A little note on Bible translation, I tend to like the Common English Bible and not just because I don't have to monogram my Bibles because those are my three initials, C-E-B. But I think it's really like a robust and accessible translation from a team of not only scholars but also clergy and laity from across denominations. But the one thing that drives me nuts about this translation is that they always translate son of man as the human one. And it and I always change it on the slides. And it always makes me think that like Morpheus made it onto the translation committee and like used all the social capital to get it as the human one, you know, and make it really matrixy, right? <laughs> but there, for as odd as that decision is, I think it tells us something about what this strange phrase means. The son of man is one who reflects and projects the whole of humanity the son of man is the human one capital letters right it's the son of man is a messianic figure who would gather up all of what it means to be human and represent us but also like represent us give us a vision of humanity fulfilled the son of man would bring about something new and perfected a new age salvation daniel 7 is activated when John sees the sound. I, I think I have a slide of Daniel 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which should not pass away, and his kingdom one that should not be destroyed. In short, the Son of Man is going to be the future and bring the future. A kingdom without end. And Visions like these are exciting for us. It seems like all the sad things will come untrue. This is the ending of everything. Every, like, mythical movie that we have, we're, we're expecting the king to come back. This is Robin Hood. This is Lord of the Rings. This is all those things wrapped up into a vision. It's those movies refracting this vision, right? And not just that. All the untrue people will be cast off the thrones that they've unjustly occupied. That's what's happening. That's why, uh, as we said last week, Revelation is a worship text. It's theopoetic, but it's also political. It's theopolitical. Because it, it calls into question fake phony rulers uh, i I think about the animated Robin Hood when they say a pox on the phony king of England right like that's like one of my favorite songs. I love it so much, and that's a little bit of what's happening here and and we're to to begin to understand this and to r- begin to recognize God's way of quote unquote dominion and glory and kingdom that is higher and altogether different of. How we might imagine it, or how our world is imagining it, so John goes straight for the spoiler. like you might expect John to carry some more suspense. We haven't gotten out of chapter one, like the Son of Man was a suspenseful character, and we've waited this long what's well, a little more build up to the climax, but instead, John opts to just show his hand, but in a, like, way that's really clear, but also as a dense and symbolic picture. And at the radiant center of all of this is the lamb. John's willing to just show us in chapter one. We don't have to wait till chapter five, or we don't have to wait till it comes back around later, but right in the middle of all this is the lamb. At the center of all of our hope and our expectation is an object, a person of sacrifice. A lamb, a life for our life and for the life of the world. Our life and our purpose is summed up in the life and purpose of this one who is God's person and the the sheep of God's pasture. Like Psalm 100 says, We are God's people and the sheep of his pasture. This lamb is God's person and the lamb of God's pasture. This is one of those moments. That both makes complete sense and is complete nonsense to us, right? Where you'd expect like the punchline is going to knock you over and it actually does knock John over. But uh, instead it's kind of intricate and it kind of makes sense from what you know. And so you just kind of sit there saying, huh, and you start to put the pieces together and try to walk away reeling with the implications of what this might mean. It's one of those endings, right? It's like that's the season finale where you just walk away just kind of looking at it, wondering, what did I just see? So John then piles on the imagery. He, he's, he's built this central image of the lamb, and now he's piling on imagery to help describe it. And we see right away that the clothing makes the lamb, right? The lamb wears a robe like a priest might. This is interesting. Because the priest is the one who makes a sacrifice. The lamb is the sacrifice. The priest is the mediator and a bridge between God and creation and creation and God. And the lamb is the meal. Perhaps this is a callback to earlier in Revelation 1 when we are then made to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. The priest helps bring out of what is insufficient and oppressive into what is whole and free. So Jesus the lamb wears the garments of Aaron and Eli in order to bridge this chasm between God and humanity. But Jesus also bears the wood of Isaac, who is the the fill-in for the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. The priest and the lamb in one dense, amazing image standing as much with God as with humanity. There's there's no picking sides here anymore. Jesus is with us and with God, and and those aren't diametrically opposed anymore. Reconciliation is possible because reconciliation requires embeddedness and empathy and and authenticity and true identification, and Jesus does that. So means that Jesus is as much on our side as on God's side. And that's a bold, bold statement, considering Jesus has been with the Father and is one with the Father from all eternity. There's no longer any more sides. There's just new creation. There's just the Lamb in the middle. So these images start to pile up. His head and his hair were white as wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. This is a pretty fierce, intense lamb that you've never seen the likes of. And I love the way that Jesus is being described here as a sheep with head and hair like wool. I love to read and hear this line. Um, as it's often been used in preaching and writing in black churches, indicating that Jesus has a little bit of a kink in his hair. I really like that idea. You might imagine how helpful this image might be, especially to be able to look at the Bible's picture of Jesus the Lamb and see yourself when you're used to looking at pictures in stained glass windows and and art that you mostly just see European-looking Jesuses. Jesuses, right? And and those versions of Jesus look like the people that own people like you, but now you look at the lamb and you begin to see yourself. The lamb's wool is white like snow, and that can be confusing and a little bit of of a hard image because white has meant purity, and that's easy to see. When snowfall happens, before the kids tromp around and make it dirty, that Pure snow is white and it's something to behold. It lights up your whole house uh, in the morning. And that's all fine and good until we go and try to do the like inverse and opposite thing and make dark or black to be inherently impure. I don't think that's what's happening here. Here's where skill in reading revelations, images comes in. We must see into and through these colors to what they're pushing for. And namely that's purity. Uh, I I learned a little bit about how um, white helps create purity um, and is a marker of purity, but also black does that too recently when I switched toothpaste and to start using this charcoal toothpaste. And you'd never think that that would actually make your teeth white, (laughs) putting this nasty old charcoal in your mouth, right? So that's a little bit of, of, I posit to you what is possible here with these images, right? you can You can go, yes, thank you." <laughs> the next image is jesus 's fiery eyes, eyes which make pure. Keep in mind that white represents purity, but so does the charred black of having one of having been one made pure by Jesus. These two connected images serve to remind us along with with Jesus's life and words that purity is as purity does. God's holiness isn't static but it's whole making, it's changing when it comes into contact with with anything else. Reversing this logic that something pure can only be made dirty or defiled instead this creates possibility that whatever has been defiled, broken, bruised or misused, can be made pure and set apart and holy and recovered for God's purposes. This is how God works. This is how the kingdom works. This is why Jesus is eating with sinners. This is, is what Jesus is calling us into, that Jesus is the spotless lamb and makes us spotless simply by spotting us. That's why the lamb has burning eyes. He catches us in his glare and he makes us holy. Imagine and image this as we go this week, that you might be an agent in and with Jesus to bring peace and healing to hurting people in your life, rather than being on the defensive about what sort of mess it might get you into or how it might negatively affect the just-so life that you're constructing. For my Type A perfectionist friends out there, consider how freeing it is to live under the reign and rules of someone whose power and willingness um, to repeatedly make you pure and whole and acceptable is the final word in your life. That, that, that even if you mess up, you're, you can be pure and whole and acceptable, and that your acceptability has nothing to do with your ability to make things happen or make things perfect. If you're looking to grow this week in your spirituality, consider what it might mean to come under that burning gaze like just sit there with it, be examined by this lamb with burning eyes, and have some things burned off, taken away that are just taking up space, things that are ornamental, or maybe things that you're doing, or ways that you're being, or habits of thought that you're in that are deeply demeaning and dehumanizing. Jesus wants to take those away ways of thinking about yourself, ways of using your body, ways of treating other people, habits of unholiness that need to be unlearned and burned, washed and deprogrammed. So we, we need to move a little, quick, a little more quickly on these images because there's just this heap of images. And I know that y'all are like, what in the world is going on here? And I'm not gonna get to the bottom of it, but we'll trace over, the skin the top of it, right? The next image, I think, is that there are power in the feet. Power in the feet. That Jesus, this lamb, has pure brass feet, purified in a furnace. Where's this coming from? What is this talking about? Have you ever seen sheep with brass feet? No, you shouldn't have. But uh, again, remember that we, we've, we're reading this with Daniel in the son of man and in that Daniel story, remember Daniel's a a dream interpreter and he's working with this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who's having these dreams and visions and needs to figure out what they mean and and there's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel interprets and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he has this like kind of lucid dream where he's able to describe it and and, uh, he tells about this magnificent like collage style animal with a brilliant and valuable body made of all these precious metals and stones, and then feet made of this compound of clay and iron. And clay and iron don't bond together, long story short. They make a lousy compound and a flawed base, and the thing just fell over and was ruined. By contrast, Jesus the Lamb has and is a firm foundation. Bronze is, I'm no metallurgist, but bronze is uh, this pure compound of both iron strength, but iron rust. Uh, So then you add copper, which is really malleable, and you kind of get the best of both worlds. It's really strong, but it doesn't corrode and rust. It's the best, best features of both metals, and it's reinforced. So out of this lamb then also comes a voice like rushing waters. These are dulcet tidal tones, right, full of power. And I like the image of, of like the Mississippi Delta or, or uh, uh, some of these valleys that are farmed where they f- the whole plain gets flooded and then it becomes verdant and fertile after, after being flooded. And so Jesus' voice is like the voice of rushing waters that bring about fertility and growth and flourishing. The lamb holds seven stars in his right hand. At that time, they only knew about seven planets. This is this is like the bedrock of astrology. So basically, this is all of known cosmology. The right hand also is the hand of action. There weren't a lot of lefties. That's not how it happened. And so if you had the whole cosmos in your right hand, you had the whole world in your hands. Your right hand is the hand of action, control, and power. Jesus has the whole cosmos at his beck and call. He's willing and he's able. It's worth noting that when we we're talking about the $1 bill, that originally the uh, the eagle image that had uh, things in both of its talons, it had an olive branch in one, which is like peace, and arrows, which is war. Originally it had the arrows in its right talon, and some of our... Uh, some of the countries that we deal with, even some of our allies, that made them really nervous because that said that war was the first option for us. And we actually switched it. Now on most of your dollar bills, um, they're switched. So the, the right is, is the olive branch and, and the peaceful approach before like the uh, bellicose uh, a- approach, right? Symbols mean stuff, <laughs> they're real, and you might have never even seen that when, with your dollar bill in your pocket, but our enemies and allies take note, <laughs> right? And then out of this lamb's mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And this sword, this word, will cut you. It's precisely this potent word that's the lamb's weapon of choice. Some might have armies, like the Psalms say, some some have horses and riders, but we trust in the word of the Lord. Rather than armies and militias, the word conquers in the same way the word creates. Or (laughs) the lamb conquers in the same way the lamb creates, with words, right? It's going to be important to us as we continue to read because kind of as Revelation continues on, like the violence kind of ramps up a little bit. And these are often strong military violent metaphors that grab a hold of the most powerful thing that we can conceive of, military might, violence, coercion. And and most of the time what's happening here is that our notions of these things are being exactly flipped over on their head in favor of God's ideas. In a world where we're so used to things happening because of what comes out of the mouth of a gun, In God's world, things happen because they come out of the mouth of Jesus. Like, the word is mightier than the sword, and that's a major through line for the book of Revelation. And so our chapter ends with John being scared to death. (laughs) Wouldn't you be, right? Um, He admits, this is is so humble of him, he says, I fell at his feet like a dead man, right? It's so good. But then he says, he put his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I like the idea that Jesus says for a second, here, let me put down the known universe for a second, this cosmos, these seven stars I'm holding in my right hand, to put it on your shoulder in comfort and assure you. The same hand that holds galaxies, holds space, for you and I. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing thought? And so this Lamb assures John and us, saying, basically, that very state that you're in, scared to death, I've been there, I've done that, I was dead, and look, I'm alive now and forever. The lamb that stands at the center of this increasingly complex picture is, was, and will be. Not even death could change that. In fact, Jesus now owns the keys of death and the grave, and he's emptying them out. It's a jailbreak of sin and death in the grave because he's got the keys. Imagine that. Uh, Last week... I was messing around with the kids, with my kids on Saturday night and I was being really annoying and like playfully not cooperating with them to show them what it looks like to have people not cooperate and and they wanted me to read another book um, which I'm very happy to do but I would only read the words on the page backwards to them and that was really annoying to them, making strange sounds and like they were provoked in this, right? I told them that something was broken, and I could only read backwards now, right? And, and Titus, who I'm glad he's not just a pure hero in this. He, he was the villain earlier. So now he, he gets reclaimed. He's always really intuitive and always really concerned. He, he looked at me, this was Saturday night, and Titus said, but Dad, are you going to have to read your sermon backwards at Oak Church? <laughs> let's get this problem fixed before Sunday morning (laughs) but in a sense that kind of is what Jesus is doing and inviting us to do in Revelation when the Lamb Jesus says that he's the first and the last he's tapping into God's very being the one who created and who will complete creation Uh, the Old Testament has this name for God, "I am," and it doesn't have a tense. It's just, I, "I am," "I was," "I will be," "I am," and 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 that's that's the picture that Jesus is identifying with. So we're wise to read backwards and see that when he says, "I was dead, but look, now I'm alive forever," we're invited. We're inviting invited by him to join in this undoing, which sees. All of our hope and all of our expectations being met in God in a very specific way. Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're invited to read backwards onto all we think and know about God from the starting point at the end. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that is going to inform and needs to, contr- it needs to inform and control your picture of what you know, and anything you know about God. Past, present, and future are wrapped up and remade in this Jesus. This is the revelation, not new information, but a repackaging and a reforming our imaginations to be able to follow this Jesus. That means whatever baggage you're holding onto from the past, whatever sin and death and wounding is dragging you backwards that Jesus momentarily sets aside everything, the whole universe, to be present to you and to say, be not afraid. This means that whatever like, current struggles that are occupying your whole dashboard, your whole life that you're currently facing, whatever captivity to sin and death that you're struggling with, and please don't stop struggling because when you stop struggling with those things, it means that you've succumbed whenever that happens to you Jesus is being present now in the present and saying here's the keys come out of there be free join me this means that whatever anxieties are uh, accumulate in this room about the future and i know there there are all shapes and sizes of future anxieties the future of your family the future of your finances the future of your health the future of your relationships the future of your soul that Jesus is present even in the future to be able to say I was dead but look now I'm alive forever and so are you walk with me believe into me join me I'll be there because I've been there I always have a hard time landing this plane for these sermons because it's just to be continued uh, so uh, I want I want to pray with y'all, um, and and we'll continue on as as we uh, move uh, towards the table. Will y'all pray with me? Uh, Jesus, who is at the center, the still point of the turning world, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Uh we thank you that we can trust in you. That we can trust that you um know best, that your tops any way that we look at it, um, that you've been there and that you've done that. Uh we thank you that the picture that we get when we look at you is not anything that we might have made up in our own imaginations, but is a is a lamb, is someone gentle um someone sacrificial uh, someone who stands at the at the nexus at the intersection of God and humanity uh, we thank you that uh because of that um you make us pure, you make us um acceptable, and you accept us no matter what uh, we thank you um that we uh encounter you over and over that you Um, are so kind to us that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts um, to the work that you're doing, Um, that you'd give us courage by being with us in this world. Uh, We thank you for all these things in the strong name of Jesus, the Lamb. Amen.